Pastor Colleen is at the back, and we have Bible boxes now for you to grab and to receive. Although it says Bible bags there, it's, I know it's Bible boxes, so those of you can, can enjoy that. For all the rest of us, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to start at verse 34, a little bit further from where we left off last week. It's the same chapter of Matthew, this wonderful uh, tax collector turned disciple who it's just a, a tremendous writer and, and the one who brings together the old and the new. A lot of the prophecies uh, come out of Matthew as he points out the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. As a Christian, uh, one of the most fascinating moments that ever occurred in war, I think, occurred during World War I. Participants would write about it and send it home to their families so we know first-hand accounts of what happened. The Germans and British, and to some extent uh, the French, were in trenches. Those trenches were pretty permanent across a no-man's land, which was a deadly zone where if you entered that place, you would, of course, be shot by the others. But on Christmas Eve of 1914, as the Christian believers in the two trenches began to sing the carols of Christmas, and the languages, of course, were lost in that familiar melodies of their mutual appreciation for Jesus Christ and the celebration of his birth and his coming. Well, on Christmas Day, a spontaneous truce occurred in which over 100,000 soldiers left their trenches and met in that no-man's land and began to celebrate Christmas together. It said that they shared stories and they shared gifts and they shared tobacco and they shared Christmas packages and all from their respective homes they came together as brothers in this uh, Christian celebration. Many, uh, they found, of course, would not go back to killing them after Christmas was over. They didn't want to shoot their new brothers. The generals, of course, were appalled at this and all decreed that no more fraternizing with the enemy would be allowed. And in fact, it's at that point that they said that it is treason to spend time with an enemy. And they began to prohibit getting together because you might care about them and you might decide you don't want to kill them anymore. <coughs> Fraternalization is the word that comes from the Latin word fratir and it simply means brother. And the word describes a process of turning people into brothers, but not just any people. People, in fact, who we are supposed to because of some uh, political uh, leader's proclamation or a military commander's order or even uh, business competitors who try to make other com uh, businesses enemies. These are people who are not supposed to be our brothers and sisters, people who we're supposed to hate and want to destroy. As I was reading our text uh, this morning and this incident came to my mind, I was thinking how this no man's land between these two trenches became a place of the God-man, a sacred place where Jesus was honored 
and not just some sentimental celebration of his birth, but as the one who brings all of us together as brothers and sisters, as a great family of his people, where this no man, or more theologically appropriate, this unique man, this fully God and fully man, this incarnated man, came at Christmas so that we might become brothers and sisters across all of these unnecessary boundaries of us and them that causes us to then want to or have to by some kind of organizational structure kill them because they're not an us. The angels declared that first night of Christ's birth that peace on earth has come that goodwill among us has come. You see, in our text this morning, Jesus combines two truths into a single teaching that is truly ingenious. But I want to take us back just a little bit over the last Sunday. Let's establish again the setting. It's Holy Week. It's Tuesday of Holy Week. The week, the day when uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians are all trying to take on this peasant Rabbi and reveal that he's he's not educated, he's not trained, he he shouldn't be having their allegiance. They should all listen to them, uh, the truly educated one. Jesus is in the temple mounts when these tests occur, so he's in the temple courts. Last Sunday we saw the test of the Pharisees and Herodians and the imperial tax, and we saw how Jesus demolishes their test with an ingenious statement about all of us being created in the image of God, including Caesar, and therefore give to that from which we came. Give to God what is God's. Then in between, we're not reading it today, but the Sadducees try to trick him by asking, whose spouse would we be in heaven if we've been married seven times? And even though the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in heaven, they ask him this question of eternal life. Jesus, very ingeniously, again, answers them. You'll want to read it. He corrects both their misunderstanding of the eternality of life as well as marriage in heaven. But we come now to our text. And this is, in fact, the final test. And he, again, ingeniously answers their question. But this time by making a question of his own. It's the pairing of these two teachings, the great commandment and the great question, that finally silences his protesters, his oppressors. So let's go to that moment in time. Right after the Sadducees had been bested by Jesus, Matthew 22, verse 34. The NIV translators call this the, great, the greatest commandment. Now, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert of the law, trusted him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbors as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, 
What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Or the son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Father, we're so aware that uh, your solutions, your answers, your uh, reality is something that we so often miss, and then we don't even know how to ask the right questions or answer the real questions. Today, we are so thankful that we have the teachings of Christ and we have these understandings so that we can uh, live in uh, the categories that you create rather than our own. And so be with each of us uh, where there might be someone here who does not yet know you. I would ask that you would open their heart and their mind and their lives and that they would begin this wonderful process of relating to you and loving you with all their heart and soul and strength and mind. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Now the complexity of both uh, Jesus' answer of this, the greatest commandment, and then the question that he asked is one of the most complex scriptures that you'll find. And I encourage you, uh, take some time, put this scripture in, Google it, and then look at the commentators, see what all of them say about uh, the text. Uh, you'll, you'll greatly benefit from studying, making an in-depth study. But for our purpose this morning, what we're going to look at is why Jesus joined the two of them together, the greatest commandment and the greatest question. And why did that pairing silence those who were trying to test him and best him in their knowledge. A few weeks ago, when we read the Ten Commandments, we saw what Jesus says, that all the law, all the commandments of God, and you probably should translate that as all the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, all the teachings of all the pastors in the Old Testament, in the, in the major and minor prophets, all of that can be summed up in the great commandment that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now it's translated with also strength in some of the other Gospels. And then, to love your neighbor as yourself is the fulfillment of the application of that relationship that we have with God. Now the word that Jesus uses in Matthew for love the Lord your God is the Greek word kurios. And it means to whom we belong. Love the one to whom you belong, in whose image you are made. But it also is the title given to God the Messiah in a unique kind of way within the New Testament. And so, love the Messiah, your God, to whom you belong. But it's also a word that can be translated in many kinds of, of adoration or or strength and power, as in master, prince, sovereign, emperor. So, love the Messiah, your God, to whom you belong, 
and to whom you have allegiance as the Prince of Peace, as Sovereign Lord. So love the Kyrios, your Theos, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love others and yourself in the very same way as you love God, with everything in you. Now this answer that Jesus gives would not have been a surprise uh, to the uh, Pharisees. Rabbi Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, from the house of Hillel, as it was called then, we would call it more a school of Hillel's, was teaching when Jesus was young. He was born before Jesus. He was uh, teaching up until Jesus was about 15 years of age. So he overlapped uh, Jesus' life by about 15 years. He had died about 15 years before this moment on the Temple Mount. But Rabbi Hillel had taught the very same answer that Jesus just gave to the Pharisees on joining together these two texts, one from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus. So in and of itself, uh, Jesus is simply giving the very best teachings that the rabbis, the educated people, had come up with. Now the point, of course, of the test is that these educated rabbis, the Pharisees, thought that, ah, there's other schools of thought, there's other rabbinic answers to the greatest commandment, and so we're going to show that this peasant rabbi doesn't have the education that we have. And this expert of the law was going to show him up in that moment. But Jesus affirms Hillel's answer, which was considered by far the most effective and appropriate answer to the question. But when he marries this best teaching of the day, that all of them would agree, yeah, that's, that's the answer, to a thought that no one had ever considered let alone have a school of thought. There was no house of the incarnation, which is what we are. We are the house of the incarnation. We're the Christ ones. No one had noticed this weave throughout all of the Old Testament of amazing prophecies that it would be God himself who would come. Even the Seder had said it in so many ways when the great Exodus event occurred that it was God himself who came. Not the least of which was, of course, one of these prophecies of Isaiah. No one had even considered that the lineage of David, which we all agreed it was gee, the Messiah was going to come through the biological lineage of David, would come through the woman, the mother, or that she would be a virgin who would conceive. Even though Isaiah said it as clearly as you could almost a thousand years earlier, that he would be called Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. And so no one noticed David's own psalm, a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that describes what the Messiah will do when he comes, the 110th psalm, that began with the words, the Lord said to my Lord. No one noticed because of their category error. They were so sure they knew the category of Messiah and what would fit within that category that when something didn't fit, they didn't even see it, even though it was in their scriptures that they read every week and studied continually. They dismissed the importance of women 
in the restoration of God's kingdom. So how could it possibly be a virgin's conception that would be the birth of the Messiah? And they had never thought that the Messiah would be God with us, the Son of God incarnate in human flesh. And so it was a whole new category for them, a whole new thought, and it silenced them. They didn't know what to say. They had come to show him up that he didn't have any education. He didn't know what he was talking about. We were the experts of all this. And yet, he revealed to them a category that they had never considered in all their thousand years of study. And he asked them, in essence, this kind of question. He says, how can David, who is by prophecy the father of the Messiah, we all agree with that, so he asked them that first to make sure that they're in agreement. Then how can David call the Messiah his Lord already? How can the child be the Lord to the father before the child is even born? How can the Messiah precede the life of his own great, 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 great grandfather? Now suddenly Jesus is asking a whole different kind of question. He's asking the origin of the Messiah. Who is this one that they think they're waiting for? Is he just a man? Or is he a God-man? A virgin's conception. Emmanuel. Jesus. Whose name means God saves. Now we don't have the time to explore Psalm 110. I did some wonderful looking at the Hebrew on that. And I don't have time to show it to you. But you might want to do that. Just go back and, and look at the Psalm 110 and the commentators and what they say about the use of the word Lord there in the Hebrew language. But where Jesus takes them and where Jesus takes us today is the awareness that God came to save us so that we can be transformed into people who are brothers and sisters capable of love both capable of loving God, of loving our neighbors, and in fact of loving ourselves. Because the eternal Savior who lived before David, before creation itself, has come into David's and your life and my life to bring true life, everlasting life, a life that it transcends any life so that we might live in peace and goodwill amongst us. So I close with a simple question, but it is the great question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you know who he is? And do you know him personally? Have your categories opened up so that you can see and understand and accept and know. The Pharisees were unable to open their categories. They simply went silent and went away as they had done before because they weren't willing to open themselves to a truth that transcended everything they understood. And that's really been the ultimate question of every single one of us. Are we willing to open ourselves to a reality that's greater than anything we could have ever imagined?
or conceived. A category that changes everything. That God is with us. We're not an accident of something. We are, in fact, a creation of the one who loves us and wants to love us eternally. Do you know him? Do you know him in that larger theological sense, but do you know him in that personal, walking with God, being transformed by him? God himself, and not an angel, as the Seder says, God himself, and not someone else or anything else, came to be with us. Are you with him? Let's spend time in prayer.